in Arbor, Michigan. I like it. afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so happy to say that Vikram Chandra is here in the studio. We're taping the show. It's February 9th, 2015. Vikram, thank you so much for um, choosing the first song of the show. All the songs, but this X song in yeah, particular. Thanks, thanks, it's, <laughs> thanks for uh, bringing me on. Um, yes, um, so I was in Los Angeles um, as an undergraduate in the early 80s, and um, our radio station at Pomona College was one of the first um, stations to give a lot of airtime to X. And so I remember listening to this song way back then, um, Johnny Hit and Run Pauline, <laughs> and dancing to it at various parties and so forth. So it's it's taking you back to the, those yeah. days in Pomona. And yeah. and that's when you you've, you first came over to the yes, States, yeah. was it? For undergrad. For undergrad. Because you've done a, a bit of undergraduate work. In Bombay, yes. And then... Why did you decide to come over, Vikram? Well, uh, I, you know, especially then, and I think still, the United States is this beckoning fantasy that people all over the world partake in. Um, and at that point, we were in India, we were living inside this socialist bubble um, and, and felt very cut off from the rest of the world. So that if one of your friends got a pair of Levi's, you know, it was a big, big thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he suddenly became the cock of the walk, as it were. Seriously. <laughs> so so there was always this fascination. And then, you know, a lot of people used to come as graduate students to, to do things like engineering and computer science and so forth. But um, I, by that time, had really started reading the American modernists and loved them. Um, and for some reason in my teenage brain, there seemed to be this connection. If you want to be a writer, then you have to go to the States, right? Because that's where uh, Fitzgerald worked and that's where Hemingway worked. So um, it was it was completely sort of... How it had, romantic. It was very romantic. <laughs> it made no sense. But but I finally did manage to do it. And so I showed up um, and had, as you might imagine, some amazingly uh, desperate culture shock. <laughs> Yes, because you also, didn't you also then go to, um, uh, what was your earlier schooling? It seemed like it might have been, was it a, a smaller, like a, a sleepaway school or something? Well, yes, uh, yeah. So uh, while I was in I'm in, sorry, that's not the right word yeah, yeah. for it. It's not like camp. While, while I was in um, <laughs> India, um, from about the time when I was 11, I was in a boarding school. Uh, that's, thank you. <laughs> in in the north of India. And um which we call public schools um, in in the British sense. So these were big 
boarding schools, um, sort of on, built on the model of Eton and Harrow and so forth. Ooh. Um, so, so, <laughs> I'm sitting up straighter now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So I spent my, my formative years in this very sort of macho landscape with cricket and, you know, uh, tea at four and so forth, yeah, uh, things like that. And so that was my uh, introduction. And so to go from that into... 1982 Los Angeles. X. X. It was quite something. So you really were dancing around. Yeah. yeah. Um, You know, before we go any further, uh, Vikram, you're here in town um, with the Institute of Humanities. Thanks to Patrick Tonks for walking you over here to the studio today. And you're going to be giving a talk tonight um, on your book, your book um, out reissued with Grey Wolf Press. Yes. um, Just just last year. Right. um, Because it's new in 2015. So this is here. um, Geek Sublime, the beauty of code, the code of beauty. Um, and thanks to Aaron Kotke at Grey Wolf for sending it out. But the, uh, to me, the, the name of your talk is the name of the book. The book. Yes. Um, so there's going to be some beauty discussed. Yes. Yeah. So um, this was a very strange book. It came about because um, I, when I was um, working at a medical transcription company in New York City while I was going to film school, um, typing up doctor's notes from exams, um, the company that I was working at got their first PCs for us to work on. And I had taken a couple of programming classes when I was in college, but I found them extraordinarily boring. I mean, I could I could sort lists of words. You know, those were the exercises that were given to us, you know. Uh, but how, like, visionary of you to take programming at P- Pomona? Yeah, well, right? I think it was already a pretty exciting field. It was, was clear. Okay. Yeah, it was okay. clear that something huge was happening. But the way that it was taught then, um, you know, we worked on mainframes and, you know, you, you got your assignment, you went and sat at a terminal. So you didn't have very direct access to the machinery. But when I was working and they gave me a PC to work on, suddenly I was in full contact and I had control over this thing. And I could use this machine to make my life easier. And that's when the bug bit. <laughs> that's when that's when you realize how powerful it is and how exciting it is that you can actually tell a machine through language to do things. So I speedily descended into this um, endless pit of geekery. I just became obsessed with computers. Um, and like as many people do when they're young, um, I tried to learn everything that I could about them. And then I was in... Um, Houston writing my first novel. I went to the writing program at the University of Houston, um, and I discovered that people would pay me to indulge my computer obsessions. And that was great because uh, it got me through grad school without having to take any loans um, and and supported my research and writing in India. I could go to India twice a year to work on the book. Because this was Red Earth Pouring Rain. Red, red, red Earth and Pouring Rain, yeah. So... Um, I've, so I've been uh, I've been involved with computers since um, for for a very very long time, and I stopped doing it professionally after I published my first novel and got a university job teaching writing. Uh, but I've followed it ever since, and I still hack around and make little things for myself. So for a long time, I thought I would write an essay, a short essay for say a glossy magazine about the culture of programming. Because I think that, um, and you our, did that. I did, yeah. That this is that's where the book started. Because you know, I thought that I do feel that um, our lives are have been so 
profoundly transformed by this revolution and that all of us now walk around carrying supercomputers in our pockets. But to most of us, what actually programmers do is magical. It's obscure. We don't understand what they do. And we don't know anything about this. Like like every profession, it has its own internal mythologies. It has its values. So that's where I started. And then it occurred to me that one interesting way of getting into that subject would be to talk about the care that programmers take over beauty. Now, again, this is something that might not make sense it to... It seems almost foreign. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the truth is that, that programmers are deeply concerned about aesthetics. The reason is that um, when you write code, you're writing it not just for the machine, you're writing it for all the programmers who will look at your code in the future and try and understand what it's doing in order to be able to de um, debug it, to fix it, and to add um, uh, functionality to it. And sometimes these timelines are very long, right? Because the there is code running right now um, at your bank that handles your financial transactions that was written in the 1960s. So we're talking about 50-year timelines. <laughs> and then things that are changing, so then it goes in, and would those change affect the exactly. earlier right. written code? Uh, yeah, so it's very important that your code reveal its intent, that it be expressive, that it actually say exactly what it wants to do. And That's really beautiful. It is. And if you don't, if you don't do that, I mean, there have been times when I've written a code that I've written myself three months ago, and I have no idea what it's saying. Right. So ideally, it can be that obscure. It can from be that obscure. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, ideally, good code. When I read a screen full of it, it should kind of tell me a story uh, about what it wants to do and also how it's doing it. So then I can understand not just the intent but also the function, right? Um, and what happens if you don't do this is that you have dozens of programmers might work on a project for over a decade. And slowly, because it keeps on getting more and more obscure, you might end up with a piece of code that nobody really understands how it works. And I'm not making this up. This is actually reality. The U.S. Pentagon has a payroll system, uh, which frequently makes mistakes. Uh, and you write about this in Geek Salon <clears throat> yes, as in, one of the ex examples. Examples, yeah. Um, and uh, it's very, they're very slow to respond when you try and get the mistake rectified. And the reason this is happening is that um, that program comprises about six to seven million lines of COBOL code that were written in about 1966 and 67. And as uh, an ex-employee of the Pentagon says, in the, uh, I quote him in the book, he says that the documentation for all of this has been lost long ago <laughs> and nobody really understands how it works. So nobody can fix it. Right. So the the impulse then on the part of the civilian, the outsider, is to say, well, why don't you just scrap it and, you know, set up a new system? But the trouble is, if you're going to write another system that is going to be seven million lines long, there's no guarantee that that's going to work. Right. So somebody's going to have to put their job on the line. It's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So sometimes the managerial impulses that you just let the, the, the technical term for these kinds of um, uh, of of programs as big balls of mud, right? Because because that's what they feel like. They have no structure. You know, you can't you can't really understand them. So they just let them roll on, and you keep patching up a little here, a little there. And I should also say that um, one thing that um, one must be aware of is the immense size of some of these code bases. So there is a 2008 
distribution of the the open source operating system Linux that comprises 200 million lines of code, right? It's hard to fathom. It's hard to fathom, right? So there's also apart from the line to line clarity, there has to be an architectural clarity. There has to be an elegance in the way all of these pieces are put together, because at some point you're going to try and replace one piece with another, and if it's not built to allow for that it becomes really fragile. What you find is that you try and replace one piece and suddenly the whole thing collapses. Nothing <laughs> works. Oh, you can't... And you, I like how you laugh, <laughs> but it's actually yeah. ter- terrible a bit. And... Yeah, it's terrifying. And we live in a world run by these algorithms, so it can get kind of frightening, right? Um, that, we that, live uh, in a world run by these <laughs> algorithms, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, these, and these big balls of mud. Big balls of mud, right. So uh, in the 1980s, a very um, famous computer scientist named Donald Knuth uh, famously uh, formalized what he called literate programming. And so he said um, that the programmer should not imagine that he's writing for the machine. You're writing for all the programmers who will read you in the future. And therefore, you should think of yourself as a kind of essayist. You should sit down with a thesaurus. Yes, because it's a shift in audience, isn't (laughs) it? Exactly. Right. And audience changes everything. Everything. Right. So, so this is something. So you, you actually, you did end up writing this article for the Glossy Mag. Right? Well, no, I because wasn't it the New York Times or something? I feel no, like I printed one. Well, no. <laughs> or, or, what happened was that once I, it, this was so this was my entryway into the piece, and I was writing it, and suddenly I was at forty pages, and my, <laughs> my wife was saying, "Really? Maybe it's a very long magazine article." And then suddenly it was 80. And then I saw, I mean, at some point I realized that I it's was writing a book. Yeah. A book. Yeah. So I gave up on the idea of the article. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take a short break and sure. then we'll come back more. And maybe we'll hear some from Geek Sublime, The Beauty of Code, The Code of Beauty. Vikram Chandra is here today in the studio. Um, he's here giving a talk at the Institute of Humanities. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We've got text engineering today and we'll be right back. Blue moon, you saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart Without love of my own Blue moon, you knew just what I was there for Love of my own. 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. And today on the program, Vikram Chandra is here. Um, his book, Geek Sublime, The Beauty of Code, The Code of Beauty, out with Grey Wolf uh, last year. Um, Vikram, you, you picked this song. I was picturing, as I was listening, looking at you listen to it, <laughs> you as the 10-year-old Vikram. Yes, yes. Um, back in India. In India. So uh, when I was in India... Uh, at our school, um, they would show us every Saturday afternoon uh, a movie in English, and the the pedagogical intention was for to improve our comprehension of English. But the movies that we saw were really strange. I mean, you know, really B spaghetti, spaghetti westerns, and then best of all for me, Elvis. Right, these Elvis musicals, and that made a lot of sense to us because we grew up on the musicals made in Bombay, right? And so there was an oh, instant seriously? connection, yes. right? Yes. Uh, and so I, I was a major, major fan of Elvis from when I was very, very young. And maybe got some dance moves from him uh, indeed. too. Indeed. <laughs> well, we played, we played Blue Moon at my wedding. Uh, that was our song, <laughs> Melanie and I. And that was our song. And this version of it. And this version too. of it. Yes, absolutely. So it has layers of meaning. Yes. Yes. So that seems to be what you, what you traffic in always from yeah. is these, is these layers, complicated layers of meaning yeah i mean that's that's i guess that's what writers do is that um unlike code where you're trying to be extraordinarily clear right the purpose of code is to be denotative you say exactly what you mean and nothing else and if you introduce the least bit of ambiguity you can cause disaster right something's going to crash it must do exactly what it says and only that but with poetry with fiction what you're trying to do is, through language, create this endless resonance, right? That that um, often poetry speaks through its silences by not saying what it intends you to feel, right? And so there's the, <clears throat> if you've ever taken a creative writing workshop, um, I'm sure you've been told in the first two or three classes, show, don't tell, right? And so the Indian, the classical Indian um, literary theorists had a version of this and they would have said suggest don't tell right yeah. so that by by putting words in sequence what you can do is suggest things and that suggestion can be endless right and this is why we keep coming back to certain pieces of art certain forms of literature because if you you know if you look at hamlet um it would seem incredible that it still has meaning to reveal to us but it it com continues to resonate and continues to have meanings hidden away within it. Um, so I think all, all artists do this. I mean, that's what we're looking for, is to set up that resonance. It's, it seems also that you were saying suggesting and the sequencing right. was critical. Right. So the sequencing is something that's then directly uh, applicable to the code as well, right? Like make, writing code. Right, right. So that, yes, in um, I think in fiction especially, it becomes um, very critical. And this seems like a truism, but fiction is a sequential art, right? So in, in sort of in, in painting, for instance, you can at least um, absorb the entire big canvas at one place. But fiction reveals itself to you, itself to you, um, Word by word, sentence by sentence, and it requires chapters by chapters. Time, it requires time, time. Yeah, so it's a linear thing, and a good writer completely will understand this and manipulate those lengths, right? So, so that rhythm of each sentence, and then the structure of each chapter, and it's something that I think about endlessly. The the architecture of a 
any narrative. Um, how do you arrange it to achieve the emotional effects that you're looking for? Um, and often you do this by, you know, um, when we finished the last novel that I worked on was this big 900-page novel about policing and organized crime in India. Sacred games. Sacred games. and um, The appendix wa- alone or so. Or the, <laughs> I <laughs> yes. was looking on your website and yeah. I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> right. So, but at, after I finished doing it, um, we were trying, my wife and I, Melanie and I were trying to shorten it and you, we kept taking out pieces and then putting others back in. And what you're trying to do is to find this rhythm um, so that the whole thing feels like it's building up to something and, and that each piece has to resonate with what happens three chapters later. So there's a lot of this kind of architectural thought that goes, I think, into into fiction making. And with something that large, did you feel like part of... Because it's interesting to talk about your process of revision with Sacred Games. I know we don't have that book on right, the right. table with us today, but um, it was going to be a massive project anyway. And did you feel like... Th- that those pieces you both were trying to take out were necessary to be removed to, to stream. So it wasn't something well, that created <laughs> some sort of bug or so, like, well, or something that yeah. laid in. Well, the, the strange thing was that we kept putting them back in, right? Because, okay. because what happens is that we would take out a chapter that felt, you know, that perhaps the book could work without, but then what you lose is the effect of that chapter some resonance resonance rate reaching through the whole book um and so we finally were unable to shorten it very much at all it didn't work uh so i mean and that's another of the interesting things about about writing fiction is that uh sometimes uh, you can read a three-page story and think this is entire this is full i had a full meal and it's a world it's a world and then you can read a 200-page novel and think, oh, I, I'm not satisfied yet, right? So, right? so each piece, I think, has its own internal rhythms, and you have to, you have to learn how to find those. When you were talking earlier about Hemingway, right. I, I immediately thought of that story, um, The Hills Like White Elephants or right. so, where there's something so, it's very short. <laughs> right. Right. Um, right, and that's a perfect example of what the Indian literary theorists were talking about when they spoke about resonance. That is that even on the sentence level, um, when you start reading that story, you know something is wrong, but you don't know what is. And that feeling of tension comes from the tightness of the sentences, from the repetition of the sounds, um, from the taut nature of their dialogue. Right. And then very slowly it's revealed what the, the tension is coming from. Right, and so that un- the things that are left unsaid, and Hemingway was a big practitioner of this, um, in in the sense that he said that uh, his ideally for him fiction worked like an iceberg. You only saw the tip, the third at the top, and all the unsaid meaning, the two thirds below, below the uh, weight b- below the surface. That's what really mattered. In these so, silences, or in these silences, and so the Indian theorists called this dhwani, and dhwani literally means reverberation. Um, and uh, often it is compared to the sounding of a bell or a needle falling through layers of lotus leaves, right? I loved that image (laughs) in your book because I I I stayed with that. Yeah, so the idea being that that, um, as you look at the surface, you're aware of other things underneath, right? And that's that's what, according to them, makes poetry beautiful. That's what makes literature beautiful. But that surface is so beautiful. 
built, built. like you were saying. Right. There's that architecture there. Right. Because I think that's one of those things where, especially for young writers, too, where you see something that's happening. And if you try, so you want to be spare or you want to, right. or you think, well, trust the silences or like what's yeah. not. But that you have to be somehow guided right. to understand or to perceive that there is more of the iceberg. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, I think it comes through practice, through endless practice and revision. Um, and it takes a long time to learn how to do it, right? And I mean, I think um, my I felt when I first read Hemingway this tension, right? I, and I couldn't figure out how is he doing this to me, right? Why do these simple declarative sentences have feel this so weight, and they yeah. feel so uncomfortable? Um, and so I think you just have to like read and read, and it. I mean, I. I'm not saying that I understand Hemingway now, but I understand something about his technique, about how he's doing that. And to help me get there, uh, these Indian literary theorists that I talk about in Geek Sublime, they were very helpful because this is what they were obsessed with. This is what they thought about all the time. And so, and it feels like there's always this doubleness, like with the um, looking to your, like the history or these roots. Right, right. And then also the newness. Right. I mean, that's one of the, I guess, the hallmarks of being sublime is that, and, and also what makes it a very strange book, is that, you know, one big narrative line in it is an attempt to uh, show to the civilian, for which my ideal model was my wife, Melanie, who is about as ungeeky and as untechnical as you can get, and try and explain to somebody like her what it is that programmers actually do, Right. And to try and do it without hand waving, right? So that um, often, uh, if you ask somebody how do computers work, they'll know that there's something with binary numbers, ones and zeros, and there's a um, silicon chips in there. But beyond that, it all gets very fuzzy. So I tried as much as I could to give a clear explanation of how of the work that programmers do, and then also to show how they care about beauty and aesthetics. And then the other half of the book is a, a journey into the thinking of these pre-modern Indian literary theorists and how that comes back, in, at least in my head, and resonates with what, um, to, to help us think about what makes language beautiful and what makes different kinds of language beautiful in different ways. Because I, th I think actually, Vikram, that this idea I've always, obviously, I mean, it seems self-evident for me to say it, but like computers function and we communicate with them through language. Right. But it's still, to me, reading Geek Sublime, uh, it still felt like a leap to make because maybe because of what you were talking about earlier, this idea of mystery. Yes, like it, it, yes. it just works. Right, right, right. Yeah, so, you know, that famous line that... Uh, uh, there was that uh, I can't remember some science, science fiction um, it, maybe it was Clark um, he said that any sufficiently advanced magic uh, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is, is indistinguishable from magic right so that at, at some point uh, to, to, the, to the layman as it were technology becomes magical right but what is at the bottom of computers is something that is so elegantly simple, right? You can build logic gates out of pieces of wood. People have built them out of Lego blocks, right? So it's at, at the bottom, there is something that is mechanical 
And that is very simple. And then through that, we build this incredible complexity. And as we do that, we discover, and especially at the point, at the level or layer at which we get into programming, we discover that aesthetics makes a difference to functionality. Um, so what we're talking about is an aesthetics of function. Ugly code is that code which is hard to understand. It's hard to debug. Um, and uh, it's hard to improve. And beautiful code is code that you can understand that makes itself amenable to change and that is architected to account for um, future change, right? Um, and so this is why programmers care about beauty in, in, in very sort of central terms, is that beautiful code is actually more efficient code. Right? It's, and it's a lovely definition of beauty, right. isn't it? Because right. the aesthetic isn't right. always obviously about Function. the functionality. Right, yeah. right. And, and I mean, and I think in that sense, um, literary beauty becomes very different in that uh, we're not even clear what the function finally is, right? Uh, because we want to create emotion within the the reader or the viewer, uh, but that that movement of language into emotion is very various. You can do it in a thousand different ways, um, and your audience is very various. Your your ideal reader might not exist until a hundred years after you're dead. Right, so that you're speaking to somebody who is living in the future, right? <laughs> and uh, and so um, this is uh, uh, literary uh, prose is not testable in the same way that code is, right? So when I write code, I write little snippets of functionality, and then I can write tests for that to see um, does this function that I've just written do exactly what mm -hmm. I'm told it to do and that's why it's so powerfully addictive to me because you get instant feedback and you know and you know you it either know. works it's or it doesn't known. yeah okay. yeah and, and writing is so much the yeah unknown. and i think any sort of art when you're making art you're, you're sort of floating in this fuzzy sea of uncertainty <laughs> you never know <laughs> <laughs> well let's take a short break and sure. then we'll come back and float some more okay, <laughs> okay. today on living writers vikram chandra is here his book out with gray wolf press geek sublime the beauty of code the code of beauty i'm t hetzel we'll be right back
You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Vikram Chandra is here. Um, he's here giving a talk called the same title as his wonderful book, um, Geek Sublime, The Beauty of Code, The Code of Beauty. Um, and I'll just read the short bio in the book. Although we filled in a lot of these pieces, haven't we already? Yes. <laughs> Vikram Chandra is the author of three highly acclaimed works of fiction, most recently Sacred Games, which won the, the Hutch Crossword Award for Fiction in 2006. Chandra lives in Oakland and teaches at the University of California, Berkeley. Well, I guess now we know some more facts, there, <laughs> yes, don't we? Um, and, and can you tell us a little bit about the music we just heard? Oh, yes. That, that is Begum Akhtar, who's one of the great, great, uh, singers of classical music that the subcontinent has ever had. Then uh, the voice so beautiful. It is. She's she's just extraordinary. There's a kind of uh, passion and romance and grief and longing that she manages to incarnate that is just amazing. So I listen to her constantly when I'm working. And whether, was it when you're working on this book, Geek Sublime, or, and also your fiction, every everything? Yeah, yeah. Well, it changes. It, it changes according to what kind of mood that I want to be in. But but the, she's, yeah, if, if there's a certain kind of, you know, like a mood of longing that I want to be in, you right. put Bigger Maktar on and there you are. <laughs> I'm going to remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, would you, we've been talking about the book. Um, oh, actually, it's interesting. I saw that its first publication, it had a different subtitle. Right, right. Can you tell us about that? Because I feel like the subtitle was is completely key. So it's right. hard to imagine it going into the world without right. it ever. Uh, well, you know, it, it's a book about many things. And <laughs> <laughs> so, like I already said, it's about programmers and their culture and their work. Um, it is about. It has in it pre-modern Indian literary theory. Uh, it has major sections in there about women in the world of computing um, and women in the world of literature. And then something that we haven't touched on yet, but we probably should, which is Sanskrit um, uh, and so forth. And so, one of the problems uh, for the marketing people in these various publishing companies was how the hell do you sell this book, <laughs> right? And then. What do you call it um, that would describe all of this? So when it was first published in India, uh, a couple now it's only a year and a half ago, it was called Mirrored Mind, um, and the subtitle was My Life in Letters and Code. Um, and then the Faber people in England called it Geek Sublime, Writing Fiction, Coding Software, you know? which not not. <laughs> Yeah. Not as, uh, yeah, apt. Yeah. yeah. And then here in the States, it's called Geek Sublime, The Code of Beauty, The Beauty of Code. And wh well, what do you think about the titling then and the naming? Well, I, I started with Geek Sublime, so I'm kind of attached to that. And with subtitles, you know, I, I'm willing to let people have their way. <laughs> you are? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it seems to me that the, the, um, the title does most of the work, and then the subtitle is m mostly explanatory, right? It's usually used as the little uh, footnote, as it were, to try and tell you what the book is about. Yeah. yeah. If, if, it feels like because of how it's structured, though, this bit, the beauty of code, the code of beauty, since it's playing yes, with yeah. arch like the architecture of the line and the... Yes. It yeah. seems... It You're absolutely right. Yeah, and that's very good because the book also, in its general architecture and shape, 
does play with the same kind of symmetries and 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 mirrorings and parallels. And so this is a way of showing it and yes. not telling you like yeah. the original. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> we read some of it for sure. So I'm going to read you a little section. Um, this is after my um, first sort of passionate encounter with computers in New York. I go down to Houston. I'm starting. Uh, I start writing my first novel. Um, I'm a graduate student, and I'm a graduate student teacher, which basically means that. Um, by the end of the month, I have no money and I'm starving, right? And so I need somehow to make money. And most of my fellow TAs had second teaching jobs, which I really did not want to do because, you know, the the towering stacks of comp papers had already exhausted me. Um, So this is where I'm at. So here's a little section from Geek Sublime. I was saved by a fellow graduate student who had noticed my burgeoning geekiness. By now, I was walking around campus with 800-page computer manuals tucked under my arm and holding forth about the video game virtues of Leisure Suit Larry in the graduate student lounge. My friend asked me to help set up her new computer, and I arrived at her house with a painstakingly curated collection of bootleg programs and freeware utilities and an extra-large bottle of Diet Coke. She just wanted to be able to write short stories and print them out, But one of the preeminent signs of computer mania is a fanatical exactitude, a desire to have the system work just so. I tricked out her machine, emptied my bottle of soda, and then gave her my standard lecture about on-site and off-site backups and the importance of regular hard disk checks and defragging. She looked a bit overwhelmed, but a couple of weeks later, she called and asked if I would help a friend of hers, the owner of a local bookstore, with uh, with his new computers at the shop. They'll pay you, she said. Pay me for letting me play with their new machines, no doubt still boxed and unsullied and ripe for my superior setup skills? <laughs> this seemed incredible. But I gathered myself and said, sure, sounds good. This was the beginning of a busy and profitable career as an independent computer consultant, which in short order led to paid programming gigs. As many consultants and programmers do, I learned on the job. If I didn't know how to do something, Usenet and the technical sections of bookstores pointed me in the general direction of a solution. I was fairly scrupulous about not billing clients for the hours spent educating myself, more from a desire not to overprice my services than moral rectitude. I did provide value. Word of mouth gave me a growing list of clients, and I was able to raise my hourly rate steadily. I set up computers for elegant ladies in River Oaks and gave them word processing lessons. I went out to factories and offices in the hinterlands of Houston to observe assembly lines and then model workflows and production processes. The programming I did was journeyman work. I wrote mostly CRUD applications, menu-driven screens that let users create, retrieve, update, and delete records that tracked whatever product or service they provided. Precision engineered drill parts for high heat applications, workers for the oil industry, reservations at restaurants. Simple stuff, but useful, and I always felt like I was learning and making good money, sometimes even great money. I could afford biannual trips to India. Programming in America paid for my research and writing. I managed to get through graduate school without taking any loans, finished my novel, found an agent. 
After the novel was finished, I accepted a university teaching job in creative writing and finally gave up the professional freelance computer work. It had served me well. Now it was time to write. I found soon enough that although I may have stopped chasing the fat consulting paychecks, the the impulse to program had not left me. The work of making software gave me a little jolt of joy each time a piece of code worked. When something wasn't working, when the problem resisted and made me rotate the contours of the conundrum in my mind, the world fell away. My body vanished. Time receded. And three or five hours later, when the pieces of the problem came together just so and clicked into a solution, I surfed a swelling wave of endorphins. On the programming section of Reddit, a popular social news site, a beginner posted a picture of his first working program with the caption, For most of you, this is surely child's play, but holy, this must be what it feels like to do heroin for the first time. Even after you're long past your first hello world, there is an infinity of things to learn. You are still a child, and if you aren't burned out by software delivery deadlines and management-mandated all-nighters, coding is still play. You can slam this pleasure spike into your veins again and again, and you want more and more and more. It's mostly a benign addiction, except for the increased risks of weight gain, carpal tunnel syndrome, bad posture, and reckless spending on programming tools you don't really need, but absolutely must have. Thank you, Vikram. I think you convey like this this passion this mania right <laughs> thank you and this moment that where you see it all happening yeah, for you and yeah. and also how it actually it it helped it it didn't save you but it 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 helped you be who you wanted to be right at a very important time right right and i think also not to forget that unlike most second jobs it's very intellectually stimulating and you similar know. to writing, when you were describing how, yeah. like, three to five hours later, there'll right, be a... Right, right. Right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I should say that, that um, programming for a lot of us has a kind of ludic quality because you feel like you're trying to solve little puzzles. And, and um, when you solve a puzzle, there's this instant feeling of satisfaction. Writing fiction, on the other hand. So the cliche among writers of all sorts is writing is hell, right? <laughs> And, and That's a bit Hemingway-ish, too, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> well, a bit, you know, uh, my colleague at the University of uh, California at Berkeley, Robert Haas, put it well. Oh, he's a friend of the show. Oh, he is? It's absolutely yeah. lovely. Yeah. Yes. So Bob... Tell him I said hi, please. I will do, yeah. <laughs> Bob said, um, writing is hell, but not writing is also hell. Right. <laughs> the only tolerable state is just having written, right? Yes. <laughs> so I think that's that's really quite truly the case. I mean, for most of us, when when the trouble when you're writing fiction or poetry is that you aren't allowed to lose your sense of self, right? Because you, what you're doing is you're building something, but you also have to keep aware of the language itself. So instead of this lovely sense of flow, right, of, of being lost in the thing that you're doing, you end up with a kind of hyper self-consciousness, right? And I think that's why there's this feeling that writing wears on you. Um, and that at the end of a day of, progr- of writing fiction or poetry, you can feel absolutely exhausted Knackered. and fragile. Knackered. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But with programming, it's, it's, it's different. Then. It's different, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people that I've encountered, it feels like a game. There's, there's a computer programmer who I quote in the book who says, the computer is the game. 
right? So because huh. you're trying to figure out, it, there's this there's this puzzle solving quality to what you're doing. Yes. In the best moments, um, that's what you feel like you're doing. You're playing a game, right? Oh, okay. And with all the attendant pleasures. Now, this is not always true, right? It, it's not the same if you're working in a cubicle and um, on a 28-hour deadline and they haven't let you out of the office and two weeks right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it no. can it can become really miserable but but at its best it's this other thing a game a game and yeah. puzzle solving yeah that yeah. does have resolution yeah exactly the resolution part of it is very important yes yeah at least in the short immediate sense it has resolution it either works or it doesn't let's take a short break and sure. we'll be back today vikram chandra is here his book geek sublime the beauty of code the code of beauty i'm t hetzel you've got living writers we'll be right back back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Vikram Chandra is here. The music we were just hearing. Ravi Shankar, who's who's one of my, uh, who's often on my playlist as well. 
when and was this growing up or when or did you find yourself listening more to Ravi Shankar when you got to the states or just to kind of keep that connection to home well, no, I, I think he's been pretty ever present in the Indian cultural context all the way since I think the 70s right this is um, so uh, as far as I mean it feels to me like he's been around my entire life and, and now his daughter Anushka is also a very good musician oh yeah so it's in the family. It's in the family. It's yeah. so lucky for us then. Yeah. It goes on. Yeah. And, um, well, we were, we were talking um, earlier in the program, Vikram, about um, language. And actually, we were talking a little bit about how English doesn't tell you how to pronounce it. Like right. the, the things, the layers that can happen in how a word is built. Right. right. Whereas Sanskrit actually right. can do both. Right. Well, I... Um most Indian, uh, most South Asian scripts show you on the page exactly how something is pronounced, right? So they're syllabaries uh, as opposed to an alphabet. So my name Vikram, um, anybody who reads it, they'll, they'll have no ambiguity about how it's supposed to be pronounced. And so for people coming from there who are trying to learn English, this is one of the most confusing things because uh, there's nothing about the alphabet that shows you in a particular position what sound it's supposed to represent. It drives us crazy. <laughs> so does it, so that almost, would that seem then like a flaw in the language? The well, built, or at the, least the it's an ambiguity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, um, one of the reasons that this is true of um of South Asian languages is that for many thousands of years, Sanskrit was the lingua franca of science and commerce and power. And Sanskrit is a very, very extraordinarily precisely designed language. It's in some ways an artificial language. And the reason that I say that is that, um, um, well, we have to go back about 4,000 years, <laughs> yeah, right? Let's go there. <laughs> yeah. So so the earliest texts that are available to us in Sanskrit are is the Rig Veda and then the other Vedas that follow after that. These are revelation texts. They're hymns um, that are chanted when a sacrifice is being done. And so it was a sacrificial culture. But the interesting thing about the Vedic hymns is that it's not just the syntax that contains the meaning. The power also lies in every sound, in every um, rhythm, uh, in every tonal quality of every word. So, and and these are very powerful hymns. So the belief is that you're engaging in this extremely powerful ritual of sacrifice. If you mispronounce even one syllable, it will rebound on you and destroy you, right? It can come back and cause great ill effects to you. So, there was so therefore the precise the nature, precise of, nature delivering. of delivery, right? And so there was a huge amount of energy and thought put into the preservation of these texts. So very because early, your soul depended on it, so depend, in a way. In a way, yeah. The, well, the universe depends on the it. universe. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because the way, the hymns are actually they're a, not authored. This is the code that runs in the universe that certain wise people are able to see and hear and then put in human language, right? So it's the constant hum, background hum of the universe that is being replicated for us. Anyway, so, so, so uh, very early on, there's a whole body of very sophisticated linguistic sciences that get developed. And out of one of those, uh, namely grammar, in about 500 BCE, there comes this incredible advance, which is a grammar. It's called the Ashtyadhyayi. 
eight chapters, and it's a grammar of the Sanskrit language. But it's not a grammar in the same sense that you might imagine when you hear that word. So, you know, the the grammar that I learned English from when I was in first and second grade would show me a verb and its declensions, and then I had to learn those um, and then apply that model to other verbs uh, of a similar sort. This, the the Ashtidhai doesn't do that. It is actually a list of rules, uh, 3,976 rules, um, very tightly defined. Um, you can print the whole rule set out under about 40 printed pages. Um, it's an extraordinarily compressed. And these are essentially string transformation rules uh, as a current computer program might understand them. So... Um, there are also meta rules. There are definitional rules that tell you how rules are, are to behave. Rules can call other rules, so you can have recursion. Certain rules can block other rules, uh, and so forth. So it's an in, in, um, immensely sophisticated little mechanism. It's not like strunk and white. It's not like strunk and white. <laughs> and what happens is that when you want a, a, a noun, for instance, that has something to do with doing something, you look in a list of verb roots that is provided and you find the verb root that has to do with anything to do with making for instance which is kri and you drop kri into the ashtidhai into the rule set and the operations start right so it's like a little machine and each time it passes through a rule it comes out transformed a little bit until at the other end you get karma but all 40 pages of these rules, if well, we were no, to some, imagine it. A, a little sm- so smaller subset of them might apply in this to situation. To this particular word. Right. So okay. it's like, you, you should imagine it like a machine it's, of and rules. And a game. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so it's been compared to a Turing machine. It's yes. sometimes uh, thought of as a finite state automaton. Um, in other words, these it's a, it's a machine that produces language. Right, and, um, and this is Sanskrit. It's Sanskrit, which is like you said, was it 500 BCE? This is 500 BCE, and this is a machine that produces language. language right, and it produces an infinite amount of language because with those 2,000 verb roots and a few hundred nominal roots, you can because there's a kind of combinatorial explosion, you can produce any amount of language that you want, and it also produces sentences. So this is one of the interesting problems about studying Sanskrit is that there are an infinite amount of grammatically correct Sanskrit words. We just don't know if whether any of them were used or Have not. Have been used. Right. <laughs> um, that is a bit mind-blowing, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite astonishing. And so it has an interesting effect on Sanskrit within the Indian subcontinent in that it formalizes the language, right? And it, it ties it, uh, it makes its functioning so clear that the language essentially hasn't changed since then. If you got a pandit in Varanasi today to write a grammatically correct Sanskrit letter and you time-machined it back 2,500 years, Panini would be able to read it, right? You when might what? not be able to make sense of, like, if you said internet, antarjal, right? Oh, you wouldn't right. have the context, right? right? But on a grammatical level, it would all make sense to him. What other language can you say that about? None, right? There have been yeah. great efforts to find, to define similar rule systems for other languages, but it's not that they don't exist, but people have not been able to do it. So uh, what happens to it, to the Ashtidhari is that, that it gets discovered by that first wave of Orientalist research in India in the 18th century. It gets taken first to Germany and then through the Germans to other places in Europe. And it has an immense, immense um, influence on the development of modern linguistics. That is to say that 
this notion that a language is not just a set of conventions that have gotten stuck together willy-nilly over centuries, but that it is actually a system which can be defined by a set of rules that work together like a kind of algebra comes directly from the Ashtidhyayi. Therefore, then, we get Ferdinand de Saussure uh, and his structural linguistics. Uh, Ferdinand de Saussure was a Sanskrit professor. Leonard uh, Bloomfield, who is an American linguist who set the direction of much of um, uh, American research in the 20th century, was also a Sanskrit professor. This is no accident. This, yeah. yeah. And so uh, Bloomfield in 1939 writes a paper uh, in which he uses Parninian methods to try and describe the workings of a American Indian language. And that paper, through an, another um, linguist named Zelig Harris, makes its way down to Noam Chomsky, who was a very young student working on his thesis then. And through Noam Chomsky, we, now, we then get what is now we understand as transformational generative grammar. Right. So what happens in the 50s is programmers are trying to build languages that they can talk to computers in. Right. So you don't want to be talking to a computer in ones and zeros. You need to be able to write lines of human-like language and give it to a computer that the computer that can then translate into machine language. But the trouble is that in order to have a computer understand a language, it has to be very tightly defined. I can say to you, go there, right? Or I can say, there, go, right? And you'll work it out. But if I, if I flip the syntax in a computer language, it'll blow up, right? The computer is, is really stupid. It has to have the entire language tightly defined. So the programmers then, and specifically a man named John Backus, they go to linguistics. And Bacchus there, through Noam Chomsky's work, discovers what he calls things off as metalinguistic formulae, right? So that this idea of how do you define a language in rules is something that he gets from linguistics. And so all of modern computer programming languages, higher level computer programming languages, are defined in a through a technique that Bacchus then set up. So there is this weird way in which Something that happened in India 2,500 years ago is linked to the world that we live in today. So every time you switch on, a, you know, you talk, you tell your Siri, you know, find me a restaurant. <laughs> in some ways, you're you're using all of those the the work of all of these various linguists and thinkers along the centuries. And in a way, you can think of them as these programmers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. In this this massive language machine right or, or across cultures across cultures right um and and like i was saying this <clears throat> there's nothing specifically unique about sanskrit that makes it work like this what the unique thing is the grammar right this astonishing intellectual achievement that makes a grammar that is then able to completely define a language right mm -hmm. yeah. well this book this book geek sublime the beauty of code the code of beauty is an astonishing book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you liked it. Thank you so much for coming to talk with me today, Vikram. Thanks. It was This has been great. And thanks to the Institute of Humanities for bringing you here to campus. And um, yeah, this has been kind of amazing. Are you, what's your next, are you going to program something? <laughs> you know, I, uh, we have two children, four and a half and six, and I'm working on my new fiction. Yeah, so I do program, but it's just like hacking, right? I, I need something to do on my computer, 
copy these files from here to there. So I write a little script that does that. But that's about the level of my programming. Because <laughs> I, I think you were saying hacking around, yeah. right? Hack around. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Vikram. It's been a pleasure. Come, come hack thank around you. again here. <laughs> You've been listening to Living Writers. Uh, everyone, thanks for listening. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Hey. right and connect. Reaching for the end zone. Touchdown, Michigan. Amara Darba. Gardner makes a hand up to Smith. Looking, firing. Jake Buck, one-handed catch. He caught it. Unbelievable catch. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the WCBN's presentation of the Daily Sports Report. Good Wednesday to you. My name is David Carlson. I'll be your host for this uh, this show. And as, on the other side of the glass, I have Brett Graham, Will Yang, and Jeff Chan. So, guys, a couple things to talk about in the NBA today. We have um, some on-campus issues to, to start with, and I'm going to start um, in Schembechler Hall yesterday. Uh, where Jim Harbaugh had his first press conference um, after his first spring practice as Michigan's head football coach. Um, and really the consensus among all the media members and even Harbaugh himself is he's just he's very excited to, to coach his team as he should be, um, at, given you know what he's getting paid and what he's uh, you know uh, coming back to uh, his alma mater and such. But He's really just trying to figure out where everything lies. There's going to be a quarterback battle uh, going in, into the spring and into the summer. And he says 